Good evening, everybody. It's Thursday. I'm Kyle Curtis. Uh, Steve McRae is somewhere around here, I believe. Steve? Yeah. Uh, welcome, as always, to Non Sequitur. Uh, we are taking a break from the, especially after last night. Um, I, I still have not recovered from the, uh, <laughs> the, the madness that went down on the stream um, last night. Uh, Steve, how are you holding up? I'm recuperating, but I got to tell you, it was mentally draining. Yeah, um, you 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 came on a good day, Doctor Bryson, because um, we were we alluded to it briefly before we came on, but um, we did one of our uh, flat Earth debates last night, and it went off the rails and crashed very hard. So, um, <laughs> but in a good way. I mean, it was well received and well watched, and we loved it. But uh, it was mentally draining to say the least. Well, he he just he, he couldn't ta he couldn't accept gravity that gravity was a thing. And when you can't do that, you can't really go anywhere in a talk. So, um, But tonight we're going to be going in a completely different direction than we normally do. It's one of my favorite um, types of discussions that we do on here. We have a uh, – this has probably been the most requested um, style of show by you guys. Um, we get – everyday suggestions um, about what kind of shows that you guys want to see. And this one is the one that just kept coming up over and over again. And um, finally we were put in touch with somebody I think is going to be amazing. Um, it's one of my she, favorite. You recently, um, uh, uh, it was John Hopkins. Am, am I correct? You graduated from um, judge PhD from John Hopkins with Dr. Bowen. Everybody out there loves Dr. Bowen. We all love him. He's great. He's awesome. So, it is our pleasure to introduce to you, Dr. Maggie Bryson. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Uh, um, uh, I just want to make one announcement before we go into things. Uh, guys, tomorrow we have, remember, um, it's actually gotten a little more interesting tomorrow's show. Um, I have some a little bit of exciting news because... Many of you guys know that in the realm of the, the Hebrew Israelites, and um, I'm talking about the the ones that think that Steve help me out here because I always um, I they never think get they're this literally right. from the tribe of Israel. Um, there's a right. subset of of Hebrew Israelites called the Black Hebrew Israelites, and then there's the what's called the Five Percenters. The gentleman we have on, he's not a Black Hebrew Israelite. He just considers himself to be a Hebrew Israelite. Right. Yeah, and we've got actually another name to add to the list tomorrow of, of people that will be involved in that. We originally, of course, had Rags, who is a, um, a a big name around the YouTube community. But adding to that and wanting to jump in on the conversation is a gentleman by the name of Vocab Malone. He reached out to me today. Um, he wants to um, join in. So uh, I think he actually has his, he made his name for doing these kind of discussions, if I am correct. So that's tomorrow at 8 o'clock. That will be another wild show, so don't miss out on that. Now... Uh, Dr. Bryson, I'm going to turn it over to you for a couple minutes or however long you need to just kind of um, fill us in about who you are, why you got involved in um, Egyptology and kind of your career up until this point. So <laughs> I got interested in Egyptology the way I think almost every Egyptologist did. When I was a little girl, I think I must have been about seven or eight, I found a book about the pyramids and how they were built in the children's section at the library. And I thought it was the best thing I had ever seen. I saw these men in their white, these beautiful, pristine white clothes moving these giant blocks of stone across the desert, and I thought that was just so neat. And so I wanted to know more. 
So I started going back to that same section in the library and I read up on the mummies and I read up on Tut and all of those things. And just, I thought, I want to know everything there is to know about this world, about these people and what they did. And then come to find out you can make a career out of it. It's not easy, but you can. <laughs> so ever, ever since I was a kid, you know, I, when I was in high school, I made it a point to learn French and German. I knew those were important research languages for Egyptology. So I was already thinking, even at that stage, about what I was going to need to be the best Egyptologist I could be. So I took a little detour. I went to a real small undergraduate college in Georgia, which is where I'm from. Um, and then I got a master's degree in art history at the University of Georgia, uh, excuse me, at Georgia State University with Dr. Melinda Hartwig, who is a now at the Michael Carlos Museum at Emory. And um, I did my master's thesis on a, I wrote a whole, uh, you know, 50 page thesis on a little tiny head about this big, a statue of a king, it's just a, the fragment of it that's the head studying the style of the portraiture and the type of stone it was made out of and what kind of statue it would have come from. Um, and while I was doing that, um, I found out that um, the director of antiquities in Cairo needed an intern, someone to come and just help with paperwork and correspondence in English. So I moved to Cairo and I spent a couple of years working for the Egyptian Antiquities Department as an intern through uh, the American Research Center in Egypt, which is a wonderful organization that sponsors uh, excavate well it sponsors research in Egypt so some of their projects the projects that they get involved with are excavation some of them are museum research projects um, but they helped sponsor me to work as an intern for the Egyptian Antiquities Service I did that for two years and then I came back to the United States and enrolled at Johns Hopkins in their PhD program uh, which I've just finished so I wrote my uh, PhD dissertation on the reign of the Pharaoh Horemheb who was the general who became king and um, right now I'm preparing my dissertation for publication as a book, and I have a couple of articles that I'm working on. So my day-to-day -day is pretty much getting up in the morning, heading into the library, and trying to make sure all my footnotes are correct. It looks like you're in the library <laughs> it now. It looks like you're in the library right now. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> that's my living room. <laughs> that, she's just that, like, that she's like, that's just my A-wing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel inferior here. You know, I have a I have a poster of an elephant that 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 says that pine trees can't come from elephants, and I know that it makes no sense, but it's a joke from a, a guest that we had on a couple of weeks ago. But um, she has an entire library in her living room, so this is going to be um, very intimidating for me. But I'm going to try to uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to keep up. The only reason I need all those books is because I can't keep it all in my head. Fair enough. Um, so, uh, real quick, the when you said that you worked for the um, the Minister of Antiquities, is that the guy that we see a lot on, you know, like the Discovery Channel or Nat Geo? So he was the head of the organization at the time I worked there. Okay, um, the uh, where I kind of wanted to start uh, this discussion, I guess, is um, there's a lot of talk, and I'm sure that you deal with it very heavily in your field, but um, the pyramids themselves, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of speculation about what their original purpose was. You know, were they a, a tomb? Why do they align to, you know, the stars so perfectly um, as they do? And I'm not sure where a good starting point for um, for this would be to go, but can you kind of guide us through, like, what the, or what we speculate the, the initial intent for those pyramids, you know, were? Can we can we decipher that? So, if 
you were to ask for the conventional Egyptological explanation, anybody would tell you that was the tomb, the Great Pyramid, I mean, was the tomb of the Pharaoh Khufu. So it was built around 2500 BC to serve as the final resting place for this very powerful king who ruled Egypt during the fourth dynasty. It was designed in the shape of the pyramid for a number of possible reasons, right? A lot of what was happening at that time in terms of Egyptian religion was that there was an increasing emphasis on the cult of the sun, the worship of the sun god and the association of the sun god with the kings of Egypt had become a big focus for Egyptian religion. And, and the Pharaoh Khufu seems to have been at great pains to cast himself as a kind of earthly embodiment of, of the sun god. Uh, his son, Jedifra, is the first king of Egypt to call himself in his, his titulary. So every king of Egypt had a set of names, and we call that his titulary. And one of those names is the son of Ra name. And uh, the Pharaoh Jedifra was the first person to call himself the son of Ra. Ra, of course, being the sun god. Um, the, the kings of Egypt seem to have been consolidating the power of the monarchy at that point. They were really pushing that, you know, the pharaoh is, is you know, the center of the universe. He is the link to the sun god. He's the be-all, end-all of, of life in Egypt, of the Egyptian state. Um, and so they built this massive monument to commemorate um, the king's ability to control his country and to command these vast, the vast resources that it took to build this thing. You have to think about the number of people that would have been involved, the amount of stone they had to move. It cost a lot of money, it took a lot of time, and it took a lot of effort. And so by building this massive monument, he was showing that he had the ability to control the entire country, to bring all of these resources to bear on a project uh, for him that would memorialize him. But it also would have served as a kind of, there's a, a theory that's been put about that casts it as a, a resurrection machine. It was built in a way to help bring him closer to the gods, just to help him ascend to the afterlife, um, to help him take his place among the great gods of Egypt. So it would also have been used to store all of the things that he needed to bring with him into the afterlife. Um, and it served as a kind of focal point for the burials of all the people that worked for him. So the pyramid is not the three pyramids that we know, right? The, the Great Pyramid, the Second Pyramid of Khafre, and the Third Pyramid of Menkaure are surrounded by vast cemeteries. There are lots and lots of tombs um, built in alignment with, at the foot of, these pyramids. So the people who worked for the king could say, you know, they could, they could share a little bit in this glorious afterlife that their ruler um, was expecting, and they could commemorate themselves as having worked for him. They could, their descendants could come to these tombs and leave offerings. Um, people who came to the site, right, to participate in the cult of the kings, right, because when a king of Egypt died, he didn't stop needing uh, the people who worked for him to do stuff for him. Any person in Egypt who died, in theory, had a spirit that lived on in the afterworld and it needed to be fed, it needed to be spoken of, it could communicate with this world. And so the people who were buried around the pyramids, the king's officials, members of his family, it was all kind of, um, it was like setting up a family compound that would last for eternity, if you will. So it, there were a lot of levels on which the Great Pyramid operated. All of these pyramid complexes would have operated, but the basic function that they served was to mark the burial of the king. And when you said a minute ago um, that 
the uh, I, I, I would just be amiss if I didn't um, kind of come back to this. But you said that would that would be the conventional explanation. Are you? Uh, do you mean that there are other kind of uh, I guess outliers that it could be potentially used for? Well, I'm speaking of the so that that is that's really the closest we can come to the truth. The outlying explanation, right, is that it was a that there is that it was that it serves some kind of celestial esoteric function, right? There are a lot of people right. who think that the Great Sphinx sits on top of an ancient library, right, a hall of records. Um, there are a lot of people who have thought that the Great Pyramid itself is some kind of weapon to protect the, the Earth from incoming celestial attacks. I mean, there are a lot of very yeah out sort of, there yeah outre ideas about what this could have been for yeah. Do, is there concrete evidence that, um, like, I, I know that I was reading some things in a, prior to our, our talk, and um, one of the questions that we got um, that, you know, people kind of wanted to know going ahead of time into this. And by the way, guys, um, if you go to the Discord server, I've got a channel up there where you can ask, um, you can post a question, and when we get to the, the, the Q&A part, um, we'll ask Dr. Bryson your questions. Just go there and post those in the Discord channel or in the live chat, and Steve will, will get them. But um, one question that kept coming up over and over, even before we, we came into this, is that um, I guess they would expect to see a lot more um, ceremonious things in the chambers where you would you know expect to find the, the, the bodies or where they would put the pharaoh. But there's no kind of like markings, I guess. Um, is that an accurate way of, of, of kind of framing that? Yes, and that's one of the most common explanations that people give who think that the Great Pyramid was not a tomb. There's nothing written in it that specifies this, you know, here lies Khufu the Great. Yeah. At the time that the Great Pyramid was built, the, so the tomb itself wouldn't necessarily have need to, needed to have been elaborately decorated. There was a temple at the foot of the pyramid, and there was another temple at some distance from the pyramid that's buried, most of the remains of which are now buried underneath a modern village. So there, were, there was an elaborate temple complex that served the pyramid. So the rituals that, that were designed to help keep the king hale and hearty in the afterlife were not taking place inside the stone, the big stone monument itself. So there would have been a big complex of buildings and um, you know, people whose job it was to work there. It would have been a very lively site and there would have been a lot more architecture there than you see today. And of course, all of that has been destroyed. All we have left are just the foundation stones from the floor of the temple at the foot of the pyramid. It's like a black basalt flooring. Uh, you can still see it if you go there. And you have to imagine that there was actually a building standing there. The valley temple, there's a big long stone ramp that would have connected the, the temple at the base of the pyramid with the temple that's now under the modern village. The temple that's, that was under the modern village now is called the valley temple. And it's been, it's under the village of Nazlidus Samen. And it's, even if there is anything left of it, it would be really hard to get at it because there's not only people's houses on top of it, but there's a high level of groundwater, so it's dangerous to dig there, and there's infrastructure under the ground there. So a lot of what would have been there, what would have given us clues as to how the site functioned is just gone. It's been lost to time. It was destroyed. That's, and that's, that's sad. I mean, that's, that's kind of heartbreak. We, we talked about this earlier before we, you know, we came on, um, on, on the air about the uh, the excavations that that go on and um, in actual cities, you know, like you were saying, there's 
uh, I'm gonna let you tell the story about um, the the dig that your friend went on because I think that's absolutely fascinating. I have a friend who works as an archaeologist um, at Abydos, which is a city in Middle Egypt, and it is the it's the the closest town to the temple built by the great New Kingdom Pharaoh Seti the um, first, and he was digging. In, he was informed by some local people that there was an interesting, uh, there was some interesting things sort of under the ground in front of this house that's in the village. And so he got permission, he, he talked to the guy who owned the house, he got permission from the municipality, um, and started, set up a dig in the street in front of these people's house in the modern village. And he found the remains of a chapel there. And this chapel was basically... Um, it was sitting sort of around a septic tank. The chapel was well underneath the level of the modern street, but it had created a kind of cavern, a sort of recess in the ground. And when they were installing the septic tank, it was a pretty convenient place to put it. And so they just installed a septic tank basically in this ancient chapel. And my friend had to deal with the fact that in order to get at these very important ancient reliefs, he had to empty and move a septic tank. And because where there's plumbing, there's a there's wet earth, and wet earth is not real stable, and there's a lot of houses and street and earth and rocks above him. If he had moved a little to the left or a little to the right, if one of their support beams had failed, he would have been crushed to death in a septic tank. That is that is absolutely insane to me that um, that somebody building you know putting a a house in place would see a temple like that and and think that's a great place to put. A septic tank. I, I mean, tell how, you, how, I gotta tell you quick, how, that, how often, that, or like the, the area where Egypt is in Cairo, how much underneath the ground, like from where, you know, cities are and, and houses and, and apartment complexes, how much is under there? Well, well, uh, is there speculation about, you know, how um, prevalent that is out there? Like something like that would be? Real well, quick, Dr. I, 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 gotta, I gotta say something real quick because I, I gotta tell you, that's gotta be one of the most crappiest ways to die I've ever heard in my life. That's what my friend thought. He was not yeah. about to die that way. That's a really oh god. Guy. And he is. It's, we're we're lucky he's as smart as he is, and is he, he's one of those guys who's real handy. You know, he does his own work around his house, and so he he knew what he was doing. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, common sense goes a long way. I think um, it, it uh, common sense, like Steve, where. Um, the cheesy jokes are you're you're the king of dad jokes, Steve. By the way, I want to put that out there to everybody. Like Steve is the absolute king of of dad jokes. I'm I'm getting you a mug, Steve, for your birthday. Well, it's better than the most things I get for my birthday because my birthday is on Valentine's Day. So all my life, everything for my birthday always had a little heart on it. And Aww, growing up as a kid, that was a little weird. That's okay. cute, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> So the the cities that um, that exist now in in what is modern day Cairo, uh, is there any kind of speculation as to like the amount of ancient temples or you know cities monuments that is under the ground now? Like, do we have any kind of idea as to what's under there in any way? So Dr. Zahi, who was the head of the antiquity service when I was in Cairo always used to say that we only know, we only have about a third of what's left from ancient Egypt. But two thirds of it is just still buried and we don't know anything about it. But I think that was always just a sort of guess based on his intuition. You know, he's been excavating in Egypt and researching these monuments and sites for a very long time. And so he has a kind of intuition about it. 
but scientifically speaking, I don't think there's there's any good way to estimate it. The problem that we have is that Egypt, even though the land mass of the country is quite large, is almost entirely desert. The part of Egypt that's good for living in is fairly small. So if you want to have a farm, if you want to have a house, you're pretty much stuck building on top of what was already there because that's that's what's feasible. You can't make the desert bloom, or at least you couldn't up until very recently. There are a lot of irrigation projects that are underway now and have been for the last couple of decades that are making it possible for people to sort of spread out into the desert. But that's a kind of, it's a very dangerous way to do things because you have an infrastructure failure, you have some bad economic years, uh, the climate changes, and you can wind up, you know, pretty much out of luck. Yeah. Egypt has just, we've just got generation upon generation upon generation just sort of building on top of what was already there since ancient times, just because that's what you have to do to live in that country. And Egypt is a very fertile, very giving land. But in terms of human settlement, there's not a lot of places to go. Yeah. It, 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 um, the, again, we alluded to this before because, um, when, when we get guests like you on, I can't wait until we actually start the show to start asking questions. So I I remember seeing last year, I believe it was, when they were uh, doing some digging around some houses in uh, right outside the edge of Cairo, I believe. They literally discovered the largest statue of uh, the Pharaoh Ram- Ramses. Um, huge. I mean, when when they when they pulled that um, that bulldozer back and you just saw that face, you know, just stuck there looking up out of the ground. In I mean, it, it couldn't have been. How deep was it buried? You may know off the top of your head, but it wasn't that. My head, how deep it was buried, but it wasn't very deep. Yeah, it it just seems like you could walk around literally anywhere in Egypt and dig something up from that time period. If you dig a couple of meters, you know, so three, two, three, four meters under the soil, in most places it seems like you find something. And there are. And when that happens. Do, do, and, oh, I'm sorry. I just let me tag on a question to that. When that happens, can you keep that, or is that automatically like if that's your land, does that become your property, or does the Egyptian you know government kind of say no, that's ours? That in theory, everything from ancient from ancient Egypt, and I think the law actually says anything that's over a hundred years old, if it's found and it doesn't already, it's not already in private ownership is the property of the Egyptian state, which means that it's the property of all of Egypt. It is the property of the Egyptian people. You know, the government comes in there to kind of steward these remains because if it's in private hands, it's going to disappear. There's a huge market worldwide for Egyptian antiquities. And if people take ownership of everything they come across, then it just gets scattered. You don't, there's no accountability as to, what happens to it and, and how that in, how the information, because really the value in an ancient object is the information that it holds. It's what it can tell us about the people who made it. And that disappears. You lose it. You know, there are so many things in museums, so many things on the market now. And when you, when you can tell that they're Egyptian because of the style and sometimes the inscription will tell you where it came from or where it probably came from, but you don't know what it was found with. You don't know what kind of building it came from. You don't know when it was found. And all of that information is just priceless. And if people take private ownership of antiquities that they find, we lose that. And so the Egyptian government's position is that 
antiquities belong to all of the people of Egypt in trust for the people of the world. I think that's a good. I think that's the, probably the best, especially for the deterioration factor. I think would be, um, you know, if you lose something like that and can't get it back, that's heartbreaking. And it's but not you, a you, solution. But it's the best they can do. So everything that's discovered in Egypt is nominally the property of the Egyptian state. Wasn't there recently a site where they actually started pouring concrete on it and having a huge problem with that, with people not appreciating the fact these are historical things that cannot be ever replaced? Sure. I mean, when you have, when you're trying to think about how your kids are going to eat and go to school and how your business is going to flourish and grow and, you know, how you're going to get through one day into the next and you have to make a decision. Am I going to, am I going to pour the foundation for my shop, my house, my son's house, or am I going to turn over this land and everything on it to the government so that it can be excavated and I may or may not be compensated? What do you? What would you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of a no-brainer there. Yeah, it's I definitely. Mean, you know, you're kind of understandable why why a lot of them don't do that. Obviously, they have personal. Um, they have to live their own lives. I get that, but it, it, is, country, it is a shame a lot, to the, the loss to humanity that, of, of when things like that are permanently destroyed. Well, and it's funny because it's it, there's such a long tradition of this. You know, Egypt is has been under colonial rule for centuries. And in the early 19th century, there was a big competition between the European powers, so England and France in particular, um, as to who could grab the most stuff out of Egypt and get it back to Europe. And so people would go into these ancient temples, and they would there, there were a couple of places that were just dynamited. The Temple of Hathor at Dendera is really a really famous example of this, right? There is a zodiac ceiling. It's one of the most beautiful and important astronomical um, representations from ancient Egypt and a guy blasted it out of there with dynamite and hauled it back to France. <laughs> what? Yeah. In the 1830s, when Egypt was undergoing a modernization drive, they needed lime, right? Um, to use as fuel They needed limestone for building. And so they just tore down ancient temples so that they could, it was a convenient supply of material that they could use to fuel this new modern industrial Egypt. And so a That's lot of insane standing up until the 19th century were destroyed in the 18, the early 1800s. Um, some of them were just, and this, is, this goes back to the Middle Ages. There are pieces of ancient temples. You can find stones, right, pieces of stone, different sizes, inscribed with hieroglyphs. You can tell the, the name of the king is on there. And they're built into medieval mosques. They're built into homes. They're built into the medieval walls of Cairo. So people have been using Egypt's ancient monuments as quarries for centuries. Uh, they've been using them as sources for raw industrial material. A lot of things in ancient Egypt were built out of mud brick, right? You would take the rich, dark earth of Egypt and build and form it into bricks and then build great giant walls out of it. Well, that dirt that those bricks are made out of is actually very fertile, right? It's a very rich soil. It's great for planting. And so people would go and they would dig up these mud brick walls. They would just hack into them and cart away this soil that had been used to make mud bricks so that they could use it to fertilize their fields. Wow. That's, They're called sebachim. It's amazing to me how in, in such a, I guess it's not so short, but when you, when you talk about the 1800s, like something like that nowadays would just mortify people. You know, like you would never um, think that, Another government would go to another country and blow up their, 
you know, their ancient temples to, to cart out their, their pieces. The, uh, the amount that we've been able to, I think, appreciate history in that period of time, uh, I think says a lot because if there would be an uproar, if that were to happen today. Well, think about modern countries and the decisions that they have to make sometimes. There, you know, in the conflicts that have been raging in the Middle East over the course of my lifetime, for instance, there's been a lot of damage to ancient sites, not because no one cares, but because we had to make a decision. Do we want to let the enemy army advance or do we want to run the risk of some of our military activities impacting ancient sites? That's a good point. That's a very good point. You uh, A minute ago, you, you kind of alluded to it and... I think this is a, a perfect seg- segue to go into this, but when you have a structure that is as massive and perfect symmetrical like the pyramids are, mm-hmm. what is the best guess for how that was you, you know, put together? Because, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just doing general uh, searches on these things. There's another pyramid, I believe they call it the Red Pyramid, that came along after the, you know, the first three. And it's it didn't fare as well, you know. It's not as perfect and and lined up. So, what what are the explanations that, since you can't know one hundred percent for you know for certain, what are the theories being put about as to how they were built in the first place? We actually have a surprisingly good idea of how the Egyptians managed to get their pyramids laid out so precisely. The pyramids at Giza are famous for being aligned almost perfectly to a very high degree of precision, north, south, east, west. And there are not every pyramid in Egypt is aligned up perfectly, but it's still remarkable how many are close to to perfectly cardinally aligned. The Egyptians, by the time the Great Pyramid was built, had been building big things in stone for a while. So the first pyramid, the first structure that we call a pyramid is is the Step Pyramid of Djoser at Saqqara. Um, So in its, you know, somewhat earlier, it dates to the, the previous dynasty, so a few generations before Khufu. And then the Red Pyramid that you were just talking about is at a site called Dashur, which is a ways to the south of Giza. It was built uh, the generation before the Great Pyramid, actually. It's not after, it's before. Gotcha. And it's one of several pyramids that were built for King Sneferu. And the, the, pyramid, the Red Pyramid is actually pretty precise. It's, it's a, a good pyramid. <laughs> but there's another pyramid just, I guess, about a kilometer away called the Bent Pyramid that is not that wasn't so lucky. Maybe that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Bent so, sounds a lot more closer to the what I was describing than, than Red. <laughs> so they laid out the, the base of the pyramid, and then they started building it up. And as they built it up, they built it at such a steep angle that the pressure of the blocks on top started to cause the, the masonry to collapse. And so they changed the angle at which they were building about halfway up. So you have these nice straight pyramid sides going up, and then all of a sudden it kind of goes, eh. And they finished it like that. There's still casing stones on the outside of it. But um, it seems that it wasn't satisfactory or, you know, the joke. What was the date of these at Ballpark? Um, So about 2500 B.C., 26 to 2500 B.C., how do you get like, those those stones are massive you know how do you get a, a stone that large like up to that high of a um, a height i mean that's impressive and and incredible you use physics and actually going back to your your remarks about the alignment of the pyramids 
Mm-hmm. One of the things that really interests me is how important the alignment of buildings with the stars seems to be to people who are interested in, in the pyramids as historical monuments and to people who have an interest in the esoteric sort of theories about them. Do, do they line up with the belt? Because when I've, I've looked into well, it, it looks like there's some kind of a, an anecdotal alignment to the, the three stars in Orion's belt, plus Leo um, and, and the Sphinx at a certain time, I think it was like 10,500 BC or so. That alignment is not sufficiently precise that every Egyptologist would accept that, yes, the three pyramids are meant to reflect the three stars in the belt. Mm-hmm. But the ancient Egyptians would have cited in the foundations for those pyramids according to stars in the constellations of Orion and Ursa Major, probably. So, a connection, so the connection with Orion is there. The Egyptians were aware that certain stars, the ones, the circumpolar stars, right, never seem to set. They never dip below the horizon. And that they can be used, and again, I'm not an astronomer. I don't know, what the, I don't know how to do the geometry. But we have textual evidence, we have uh, surveying instruments, a lot of different things that indicate to us that they were actually using those stars as a way of citing in the foundations for these pyramids. So they were certainly aligning them to the stars. Yeah. And they weren't flat earthers, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So the, the, the physics of, of, of moving what, what many would think would be unmovable blocks to you know such a height uh, kind of walk me through that because that's the that's the one thing that I find the the most fascinating is that you have this civilization that are able to you know create such almost perfect structures and the stones are I mean they just look immovable they do look immovable um, but by using a combination so there no one knows the exact method that they used and here's the thing about Egyptologists right. we hate to be wrong we do not like to be wrong about even little things. So when I say no one knows the exact method, I mean we don't know whether, you know, a guy named, you know, Keti took three three wooden blocks and his buddy, two of his buddies levered up a stone. And he, like, we don't know the exact mechanics of it. But we know yeah. in general that it's possible to move a stone that size. And so the largest stones in the Great Pyramid probably weigh something on the order of 50 to 80 tons, right? We know that it's possible in principle to, to move stones that size using levers using ramps, using large amounts of manpower, right? One sort of one popular idea is that if you could wet the sand along which you were going to slide something and then you could get enough men to move it, you could put use wooden sledges or rollers on wet sand and that would reduce the amount of friction enough that you could get the block moving. And then with sufficient manpower, you could direct that movement to get the thing transferred across fairly long distances. Is that feasible there are, in that kind of arid environment, though? How, how would they have transported the water to do that efficiently? The river is right there. The Egyptians, right never got, They're just, the Egyptians never got far from the river. And the pyramids, most of the great buildings of ancient Egypt, pyramids, temples, had harbors. They would build massive harbors and canals to bring the river sort of right up to the foot of these monuments. So archaeologists nowadays are, are excavating a lot of these ancient harbors and canals, and, and you can really see in some of these maps just how close the water got to the monuments. There was always a ready source of water. I saw something um, on a, a documentary. Um, it was a few years back, and you can let me know if there's any you know credibility to this, but they showed an example. One of their hypotheses was that there was a system by which they would pull these blocks in through the actual pyramid and up kind of a, a quarter um, using almost like a pendulum, I guess. 
I know the about the internal ramp theory. I know there was an idea that there was a ramp that went up the entire uh, height of the pyramid in a kind of spiral, and that they just kind of walled it in as they went up and dragged the blocks up from the inside, and that that is not considered real plausible. There's not mm -hmm. enough evidence in the in the way that the stones are laid to make it likely that that's how they did it from what we can see. Um, yeah, I, I just thought that would, that would be amazing if they were able at that time to you know, think of that uh, sort of way of doing it. Because looking at it, it in theory, it, it, may, it looks like it would make sense. It looked like it would be something that is feasible. It just would take some kind of absolute genius to figure out, you know, that method. They definitely use ramps. How about, yeah. how about with the lifting of like the obelisk? I've seen them actually go out in the field and, and kind of simulate these types of experiments where they take a massive obelisk and take it from a... a a parallel to a perpendicular position using water pulleys and a lot of manpower, but they have shown that in theory to practice, it can be done. It's not like it's something completely impossible that requires alien intervention, right? Well, we know for a fact that they use ramps. Mm -hmm. the, remains, there the remains of small ramps that go up sort of the lower courses of the, the Great Pyramid, for instance. Um, there are ramps that you can see where they use the, that they use to drag large stones out of quarries. So the Egyptians knew that if you had an inclined plane, you could get physics on your side. And so we know that they were doing that. I mean, you say, you know, it would take genius to come up with that. They had it. They did it. Um, and oh, there are yeah. modern projects. There is uh, one of the neatest projects uh, that's been going on in Egypt over the last few decades is at the Mortuary Temple of Amenhotep III uh, near modern-day Luxor. And the, the archaeologist in charge of that site has, ha has organized the re-erection of colossal statues, you know, so 50-foot-tall statues. And she's had her team use pulleys and manpower. That's brutal. These massive multi-ton pieces of stone back into their original positions. It can that's, be... That is brutal. Um, the, uh, I, I saw um, something else... Um, too, and I'm sure that you you may have a hands on on this, but since you were in in Cairo recently, but they, they have a team of people who are um, you probably know the, the technology off the top of your head, and I'm trying to remember it, but they're using almost like a scan system where they're um, shooting these particles or something like that, that that collect in the empty spaces in the pyramids, and so they're actually able to see in places that you know normally you couldn't to find, um, you know, or they're on the search for different chambers. Um, and the name of the project escapes me right now, but it, it was fascinating to watch. Japanese projects? I know there's yes. scan pyramids, and there's yes. Japanese engineers involved in it. And what they're actually doing is there's a kind of, again, I wish I knew more about this, but there are particles called muons, M-U-O-N-S, yep. that mm -hmm. move through space at a kind, and they, they, the properties of these particles are sufficiently well understood. They're able, apparently, to penetrate stone, and they're they're naturally occurring. They exist. They're, they're part of the most a lot of cosmic rays are, are muons that have, that uh, can actually make it to the Earth because of relativity. And the these engineers have developed sufficiently sensitive instruments that they can measure the rate at which these muons penetrate the stone. They can they can measure. Again, I don't know exactly. Again, Egyptologists, we hate to be wrong, so. <laughs> Yeah, I understand that. They're doing it, but they're able to measure the way that this cosmic radiation is interacting with the monument mm -hmm. to infer things about the internal shape and characteristics 
of the pyramid. Do you know of any, um, like anything they found so far? No, uh, I don't know anything that you don't know. Oh come on, Doctor Bryson! <laughs> yeah, I know I a little you about neurons, but uh, you're 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 holding out on us, I believe. Um, I, but they I honestly don't. I only know what they released to the press. There's actually um, a but pretty are they actually using are they using cosmic ray muons? Or are they using um, uh, source muons? Muons where they're no, they're, they're using cosmic okay, cosmic muons. As far as I know, they're using ambient cosmic radiation. They're not um, they're not generating um, generating uh, a muon stream of any kind. Yeah, they're, they're like flat, um, like metallic um, sheets about this, you know, about like this and about like this. And they screw them in place and they leave them there for, um, I think it was 11 months it takes for these, you know, to come in and, and to collect enough to be able to take a, a sample and see where the, the spaces are. But um, they just literally sit there and wait and these sheets catch them as they come in. And it, it's it's mean it's cruel and it's sad all at the same time. But the the thing that I watched leaves you on a cliffhanger of these guys looking at the um, the printout of the uh, the rays and showing this. I mean, it, it was a large section of uh, kind of the top corner of one of the pyramids that's just an open space and still sealed off. So I, I'm sitting there going, "No, you're supposed to show us what's in there. You can't go away now." Well, unfortunately, I get the impression, and again, I don't know this for sure, but I get the impression that it's a little bit like radar. So when you're using radar to determine whether there's a void behind a solid surface, you don't get a very precise diagram of the space. What you get yeah. is information about how the, the radiation that you were, in this case, generating and directing is reflected. And it bounces around, and it gives you a fairly impressionistic uh, picture. And that has to be interpreted. And so what the, the, the muon project seems to have found is that there's reason to think that there's a void in there. But I don't think that their instrumentation is precise enough that they can say exactly what it is. That's fair. Um, I, and I think you're, 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 it must be really hard for you being in the middle of, of kind of that kind of field and those kind of discoveries being made and having to be kind of on the reserve part, you know, because me, I, I would never make a good Egyptologist because I would just be like, oh, there's something in there. There's a mummy that we have not found. We have to go and and get it now. But the, the there's, from what I saw, just as a layman, there's obviously a opening there that was used at some point. So naturally, my mind's going, okay, I bet there's something really important in there. Well... We know that there are several voids inside the Great Pyramid, the King's Chamber, the Queen's Chamber, mm -hmm. right? the passages. They're all empty. So it doesn't pay to get too excited until you've had a chance to actually ground truth or, or explore with your hands, right, to really get your eyes on what's actually there. It doesn't do to get too excited. And second, well, you have to think about once you ha are reasonably sure that there is a void, right, mm -hmm. You have to think about how exactly you're going to get at it. Because you don't oh. want to damage the structure for a variety of reasons. First, this thing has been standing for over 4,000 years. It is a monument to human ingenuity, to engineering genius, to time, right? It Very would be a shame emotionally, right, to harm this beautiful structure in any way. And 
most archaeological methods of any sort are destructive. You can't dig into the ground without running the risk of damaging something. You know, and if you're going to get into a sealed chamber, you're going to have to unseal it somehow. And so I would want to be so sure that what I was about to do was going to be worth it before I took that risk. That's such a good point. I would want to be beyond sure. Who makes that call, though? Like, who who ultimately decides, you know, when when it gets to that point and you think there might be something behind there? Like, whose decision is it to say, okay, you know, it's worth going in to um, see what's behind here? It always works out to be a committee decision. So you're going to have... Everything does, right? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. The ultimate responsibility for that kind of thing falls on the Ministry of Antiquities. You know, so the the Ministry of Antiquities is the person, his is the desk where the buck basically stops. Mm, You can't win on that, though, because if you go in and there's nothing there and it's a bust um, and you've taken out a big chunk of the, you know, one of the greatest monuments in history, you're kind of... I guarantee you he won't be minister for very long. Um. <laughs> yeah, that's a risk that any person trying to make a decision like that would run. Do we risk damaging one of the world's most important structures? Yeah. Where's all these great libraries that uh, people have hypothesized that have been stored in any of these chambers with all they these scrolls? They're just not existent. <laughs> I mean, there's no great library of Alexander, that, Andrea, that we're, they're going to be fine somewhere. They got burnt, great. didn't it? It did. Yeah, it got, got destroyed. And... They know where it was. Yeah, yeah. But all the papyrus scrolls were, were destroyed, right? Right. Yeah. How much loss of information was that? I mean, just amazing. It, 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 if you, if it'll keep you up at night thinking about stuff like that. But you don't Absolutely. think there might be something similar in other locations yet to be discovered? It seems unlikely. The amount of, the amount of prestige that would have surrounded a library like that, right? Because knowledge is power is the famous saying, right? And in the ancient world, that was also true. If you had those kind of books, right, it was a symbol in a way, right, of your prestige, your power, your the greatness of your society. So people tend to want to advertise stuff like that. That's a good point. So something on the scale of the Library of Alexandria, it seems unlikely to me would, it seems unlikely to me that it would have escaped everybody's notice. And what about the uh, the the um, the 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 bodies or, or uh, sarcophaguses of the, the pharaohs that like Khufu? Um, if he was interned in the the Great Pyramid, are there any kind of um, thought as to go into what happened to those? Were they just looted and lost? You know, to time. Are, do we have them, or are they just you know gone? We so there of Khufu, we do not have anything. We are, there's nothing left um, from his burial that we know of. Uh, But one of the problems about building a monument like the Great Pyramid is that everybody knows where it is, right? And people are real ambitious when it comes to getting in, you know, money is a great motivator. And so if people think that there's a reason, they will go to any length to access that sort of thing, right? And no amount of policing, right, can really protect anything absolutely. Like the burial of Tutankhamun was robbed probably just a few years after it was completed and sealed. Right? They didn't get away with a whole lot. They left a bunch of stuff behind, but that burial was disturbed not very long after it was finished and sealed off. Right? So people knew where these kings were being buried. They knew that they were being buried with very valuable things. 
And in spite of all the sort of religious and social taboos that would have served to protect these monuments, there was no way to keep people out indefinitely. Yeah. The Great Pyramid has been standing there for millennia, sort of inviting people to come and figure out what's inside it. So the idea that it could have been completely cleaned out does not in the least surprise me. Um, we have the sarcophagus, the, the stone sarcophagus of Menkaure, but it was lost at sea in the early 20th century, right? What? Yeah. So there are a lot of objects from these burials that were, were be, the things were moving around, you know, as late as the 19th and early 20th centuries. And, and, you know, they, they sank. That's, that's mind boggling, I think. But on the other hand, there is a probable chance that those bodies are still somewhere, you know, in, in somebody's possession and could, resurface one day there is a chance but i mean you know right i'm sure that you've heard that mummies the human preserved human remains were considered very potent medicines for a long time Mm -hmm. so in the early modern period right the 1700s 1800s people used to go and get just piles and piles and piles of mummies especially from later cemeteries when lots of people when, when mummification had become common, lots of, so in the Greco-Roman period, for instance, when lots of people were being mummified, right? There were just these large, these vast numbers of hum, mummified human remains, and people would take them and just grind them up by the ton to make medicine. No, I did not know that. No. And a mummy is only as good as the label on it, right? Like, you, if a mummy becomes separated from the, the thing that identifies it as the mummy of an important man then who's to know whether it should be kept or whether it could usefully be ground up into medicine. Oh my gosh. I did not know that. So people w- would take like, <laughs> like Centrum, you know, in the morning, I've got to take my, my, my daily uh, dose of mummy. Yes. I sh- I need to ingest my daily dose of ground up human remains. It that was supposed is, to be good for your health. You said the 1700s and, and 1800s. Was that not like, you would think that civilization would have advanced enough to, like, you can't go um, <laughs> herd up a bunch of mummies and grind them up. You know, that's a, that's a little bit of a social taboo, I think. China has those things all the time. I mean, with with uh, whales, you know, I mean, should be a shark fins and uh, um, that's a lot different you know, than a body, ox penis, and and all kinds of things that they think for some reason has these mystical benefits to virility and and, and overall health. That's a lot different. Fits and starts. What's that? Civilization moves in fits and starts. Obviously. And it's for, for, so, right, it's possible for people to be very advanced in some ways. What we, what we, and again, what we think of, we use the word advanced very casually. But what does it really mean? What are we moving toward? Toward what are we advancing? Right? And unless you establish that, then it's really hard to say whether you're going forward, backwards, or sideways. So 10,000 years from now, we're going to be that much different from the Stone Age. We could be. We might not be. It's hard to know. Yeah. I mean, you know, there have been cultures that have had fire and lost it. There are cultures that have had writing and, and apparently lost it. You know, there, there are places in the world where civilization has moved backwards for a variety of reasons. And there are also places and times where very advanced thought has coexisted with what we would consider very superstitious and very backward ways of thinking and approaching the world, right? And sometimes, and sometimes the advancement brings about the backsliding, like they go hand in hand. Like when you think about racial science in the early 20th century, 
right, the period when science was science, right, the, the industrial era when science was blooming and blossoming and, and we were starting to, to think about the world in, in terms of what we can test, how do we work through the scientific method. One of the first things everybody wanted to know was why certain races are inferior. And they made up an awful lot of stuff that sounded fairly plausible given the state of science at the time that we now know is patently false. But unfortunately, those results, you know, what they considered to be results, right, that scientific thinking cost untold millions of lives. That is a very good point. When I think talk- you hit the nail on the head right there. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> No, that's, um, and I, uh, we, we alluded to this last night, um, and it's kind of off subject, but since we're um, – you, you brought up that point. I think that you're seeing it a little bit um, today now too. It seems to be that – like I, we said, um, the numbers for people who are following the idea that the earth is not round and that it's flat are increasing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're seeing a <laughs> – Shockingly enough, an increase in people who believe that for whatever reason, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but uh, it's almost like we get to a certain point and then it's like, nope, we can't, we can't keep going forward. We got to, you know, rein it back in a little bit now. YouTube. I mean, people go to a YouTube video and they call that research. Um, I've done research on this by watching YouTube videos. Therefore, you know, they have the the opinion the earth is flat. That's that's why I think it's a dual-edged sword with technology. People that can learn things and learn actual science or they can use it spending their time watching a flat earth video. Um, Well, and you can learn part of the science, right? You can learn certain facts that are incontrovertibly facts. You know, not and the to them, they don't believe gravity. Oh, exists. you would be surprised. <laughs> gravity is not a thing with them. <laughs> you would be surprised. I wish gravity wasn't a thing sometimes. Amen. There's the other day. <laughs> I, I got. I got to tell you. I got to tell you this one. This comment real quick because this is great. Somebody had actually said, "Well, she doesn't seem crazy at all. What's going on here?" Occasionally, we have some normal people as guests. I, I don't know why that's disconcerting to people. <laughs> yeah, that's the sad thing. Um, you know, you know, you've had um, a little Someone bit too uh, out there. Out there shows when, um, and, and you know, like I wanted to get to the crazy because uh, I, I'll just admit that I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy person at all. Like I don't subscribe to many, but the one that I probably would give a little bit of credence to, and um, it's not really directed towards Egypt. It's more Sumeria, but I think that there was a civilization that was more advanced than we thought and existed earlier than we thought just because of things like the, the megaliths that you see everywhere. And, um, with Sumeria, it seems to like come overnight. The, the things that they were doing, it just like popped into existence and I don't dive, you know, too deep into it, but I, I think that like somebody like yourself and Dr. Bowen, who is like Im- immersed in that culture and you're around it all the time, like, that would be the first place that I would go is to see, okay, is there any type of legitimacy to that? Like, could there have been a, a civilization that maybe was there before Egypt? And that brings me to the Sphinx, because that's a, a contested thing with, is it water erosion? You know, is it due to the weather? And, and I, I'm not asking you to go into that, because this is not one of those shows where we're going to, into a conspiracy theory, but... Um, it would make me a really happy person if you could um, tell me what your views on the, the the Sphinx are and and why it's kind of like an oddball in that in that Giza area. 
you know, because the the face has been redone. You know, um, there's just all kind of questions to it. Well, so indulge my indulge my curiosity for a minute. <laughs> well, it's something we're all curious about, right? It's fascinating. You know, the Sphinx. It really is, and this the 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 combine the combined man lion form is something that you don't we don't have any examples of earlier that we know of for sure. You know, there are some pieces that people have speculated are meant to represent sphinxes, but they're fragmentary. And it really doesn't take off until the Middle Kingdom, you know, several hundred years later. So it is, it does seem to be kind of a one-off. It's just sort of standing there, right? And it's in a funny spot. Um, there is a project, so you, you guys must know about uh, Dr. Mark Lehner, who's been working on the Giza Plateau for decades. I do not, no. Well, he he has been for he's one of the people who has studied the Sphinx most extensively, and um, an idea that I associate with him, I, I I hope I'm crediting the right person with this, is that the Sphinx is that there some of the stone used to build the the temple that goes with the second pyramid, Khafre's pyramid, came from that ditch that's around the Sphinx, right? Mm -hmm. The Egyptians were very sensitive to the natural world. They were very sensitive to the shapes of natural things. Right? They could look at a mountain and say, that mountain looks like a cobra. That mountain looks like an elephant. You know, that natural, naturally occurring thing reminds us, right? The, the Valley of the Kings sits underneath a mountain that has a natural pyramid shape. They didn't make it that way. It just looked pointed. And they thought, oh, hey, great. Here's a pre-existing pyramid. Let's put our kings there. <laughs> so my an idea that I don't think is, so, is too far-fetched is that there was something in the natural landscape that suggested to them that, this would, that there was a reason for there to be a monument there. Do you see what I mean? That there was yeah. outcropping of stone that looked to them like a sphinx, that there was um, a story associated with that place about a god that had something to do with the natural topography, the shape of the stone, and that they went in there and modified it to make it very clear what they were thinking. I see what you're saying. They, it's kind of like the Michelangelo's um, uh, quote, and I'm going to butcher it, because I wasn't prepared for it, but it's something along the lines of he saw the um, the angel inside the marble and chipped it free. Exactly. And I, guys, I know that that's a, a that's hacking it up, but you get the idea. They <laughs> saw this shape that looked like a you know a, a lion body with a man's head and freed him essentially. I'm but sure the, can supply us with the original. Yeah, tally. the way of uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but when it comes to aesthetics, where a sculptor kind of looks at it is not that they're sculpting something; they're removing the parts that shouldn't be there. Well, no, they were freeing it from the marble. Yeah, yeah, they're removing the marble that that is not part of the, the what they think should be there, the the angel or whatever it is, and adding to it. Right, there are later casing blocks on the Sphinx, so like the the tail of the Sphinx is actually carved into blocks that were put in place later. They're actually masonry blocks as opposed to being part of the living rock. I didn't you know can, that. You can go around. I'll if I if I if I had really properly prepared, I would have gotten my pictures of the Sphinx. So you I like show pictures. You. Well, we're gonna have to bring you back. We now. like pop-up books too. It's it's quite all right. But a lot of these a lot of these things are much easier to think about in pictures. I I think in pictures. I'm an art historian, so I think in pictures. <laughs> we should we'll have to do that. Um, I, we could do an entire show on on the Sphinx itself. But the one question that uh, about that particular thing that I, I at least want to get kind of what your opinion is the the face mm -hmm. because it's so you know disproportionate to the the rest of the structure are we looking at something that you know it was one thing at, in its early existence and they maybe due to weather or erosion they had to modify it and just make a face out of it or is that intentional is that you know kind of 
proportions done on purpose? I suspect it's a combination of the shape of the original living rock that they were working with. And I, I, I suspect that that had a lot to do with it. The fact that it looks like it's been reworked is so typical of Egyptian sculpture. There are hundreds of Egyptian sculptures that have obviously been reworked at every scale, from statues the size of, of you and me to colossal statues, like the one that they found outside of Cairo that you were just talking about, right? The ancient Egyptians would make adjustments as they went to sculptures. Sometimes they would come back in if something was damaged and fix it. Um, and this happened in every period that we know of Egyptian art, essentially. They were constantly modifying sculpture. It was There are sort of moments when it was particularly common, the reign of Ramses II being one. But if the Sphinx, and again, I, I, should, I wish I knew more about this, right, but I'm not a geologist. Um, right. If the original living rock right, had sort of dictated a certain set of proportions and they had thought, you know, let's adjust this as we go, it's not inconceivable that they, or if somebody had made an error, right, if they had encountered a defect in the stone because the rock that it's made from is, it's very heavily sort of uh, layered, right? And it's not easy to work in rock that comes in layers because you don't always know how it's going to break or where it's going to break. Very good point. So if they'd encountered a defect in the stone and had to change plan or correct something, there are a lot of reasons why the Egyptians would modify a sculpture, either at many years after it was created or as they were working on it. Um, so the fact that it looks modified, I think, makes it look much more Egyptian to me. It looks very... <laughs> yeah, that's fair. You, you, I think that you'd, uh, you'd see that a lot, too, uh, especially during the, um, like the reign of Cleopatra and with Mark Antony and Julius Caesar when that kind of Rome swept into... Uh, Egypt, was there a lot of, of things that kind of shifted in terms of um, architecture and that? Because that was, I mean, it had to have been a heavy influence with Cleopatra being not Egyptian by birth. The Greek and Romans, the, the successive Greek and then Roman um, occupations of Egypt definitely produced some really interesting and very profound changes in art and architecture. But one of the things that's the most striking about the Ptolemaic and the Roman periods is how readily the Greek and Roman invaders, if you will, adapted to ancient Egyptian forms. There are plenty of representations of Cleopatra as a queen of Egypt. There are lots of representations of Augustus as a pharaoh, dressed in an Egyptian kilt, in an Egyptian king's headdress, with hieroglyphic inscriptions around him on temple walls. They built monuments to the Egyptian gods. They, they repaired and expanded earlier monuments to the Egyptian gods. You know, Alexander the Great very famously had to consult an oracle of the god Amun before he invaded Egypt, right, at Siwa Oasis. He asked an Egyptian god, you know, to tell him whether his uh, campaign would be successful. Uh, all that is fascinating. Uh, like, the, I, saw, I saw something the, the other day I was um, I, Obviously, I watch way too many YouTube videos on um, <laughs> ancient civilizations, but um, they were actually calling into question whether or not um, Cleopatra, who so often is you know regarded for her beauty and and brains, was as beautiful as they say that she was, because according to this, uh, the Egyptians would kind of shift her look as they were either sculpting her or putting the hieroglyphics up to kind of convey a message that, you know, we've got this total package um, ruler, I guess you would say, but that in real life, um, 
it, that wasn't the, that wasn't the case. There are different kinds of representations of Cleopatra. Sometimes she's represented essentially as an Egyptian king or queen, right? Mm -hmm. She's shown in an Egyptian style, a very what what we would what we could call for convenience an idealized style, where her features are made very regular, where her face looks Egyptian, where her clothes are Egyptian, right? And then there are representations in what we would we would typically call a realistic style, right? Where she looks optically like you would expect a woman that you ran into in the street to look, like if yeah. you took a photograph of somebody. Did she uh, did she really kill herself with an asp, you think? I don't think we have any way of knowing. <laughs> yeah, that's a later story. And I yeah. <laughs> but with, with regard to Cleopatra, right, the question that always pops into my mind is why is it so important to us to know whether she was beautiful? Why does that, what does that have to do with anything? Uh, I don't think anything. Um, I, I think that it speaks to, for me anyway, what I found interesting about it um, to me is that their motivations, like back then, for doing it, like why would they alter, you know, that kind of um, aspect of her life? If, because I, I think you, there's no, it's not up for contest, contesting whether or not she was brilliant. You know, I think everything points to the fact that she was just a genius, militarily, you know, politically. But for some reason, they get on this one thing where they they have to either go a direction of let's keep it to the classic oh we've got a ruler that is uh, beautiful and smart and intelligent or the the group that says no we're going to put her in a um a light that she was actually in so i thought the the entire interesting aspect of it was the ones that actually put her in the egyptian role where she you know is taking the role of an egyptian Pharaoh, even though she's obviously not going to look that way because she's not Egyptian by birth. But but I think there is something to be said about what a society thinks is beautiful, especially historically from an aesthetic point of oh, view. Yeah. And if there is these things as object beauty, um, you know, these are these are unanswerable questions in philosophy that I find interesting. Right, exactly. Uh, so in that regard, that I, I think it's a very, you know, what what would they consider to be beautiful back then? You know, I, I think that's a valid question to ask. I, and I agree. When it comes to Cleopatra, it's so complicated because there are so many different levels on which the, the construction of the image of somebody powerful is operating. In Egypt, too, when you think about beauty, right, or the ideal image, you have to think that for the Egyptians, when you made a statue, you weren't just making something that was meant to be looked at. You were making a living thing. The ancient Egyptians had rituals, right, that they would conduct when, they, when a statue was created that, that opened the mouth, right, of a statue that made it ritually alive. It could receive offerings on behalf of the person it represented. So if you're talking about a cult where the ruler was being treated as a god, people would go to that statue and they would make offerings and treat it as a kind of living thing. Was, was this some kind of reification of the deity? Um, or, I mean, some kind of, it was actually a, a construction of uh, an entity that had some kind of relationship to the actual being or the actual being itself? So ontologically, like in terms of how people were conceiving of these things, the closest analogy that I can Sort of that I the thing that I always think of right is the idea in in Japanese mythology that a deity resides in a stone or a tree or something like that. But there are certain the physical dwelling. things, right? There are yeah. certain physical things that can accept the indwelling of a non-physical presence. And in Egypt, the idea was that with a statue, with something that was created by human hands, it had to be ritually activated in order to have that property. 
So it was inert until the ritual. Right. Okay. That's awesome. See, I'm fascinated by that. That's yeah, I mean, that's why you would want them to be, like, I think, as accurate to how they were, you know, in this life. Uh, if you were going to have a body made for you to last for eternity, would you want it to show the bump on your head from when you were a kid or your bum knee? Well, I'll take Channing you, Tatum. Did, but did they like, you want to put my order in? <laughs> you, you, can make, you can make your body the next uh, life you know, custom made. But didn't they take, you know, they took the internal organs out of the body and, and put them in the canopic jars, right? And but Except for like the heart, right? Because right. they thought that was where the soul reside. And I, it's funny because I, I actually remember taking, uh, it came to me like earlier today, I actually took a little bit of a course in Egyptology in grade school. <laughs> they had actually... Um, and I, I remember some of these things going, yeah, that was weird that they would take these body parts out and thinking that the person would need them in the afterlife. But why would they need them in the afterlife? If these were physical things like the, the brain and the spleen and the liver, why would they think that the, the pharaoh, whoever they were um, mummifying, whatever, would need them in the afterlife? What was the reasoning behind that? So that's a tough one for me to answer too, because I don't want to put words into the mouths of people I can't talk to and consult. And again, if you had asked three different Egyptians, you might've gotten three different answers, but I'll try to take a stab at it. The ancient Egyptians thought of being as something that happened in a lot of different levels. So things had a physical body, a physical existence, and then they had multiple non-physical aspects, right? And your physical body had aspects. The ancient Egyptians knew, right, that, that bodies decayed, that bodies were made up of bones and organs and skin. And a lot of ancient Egyptian funerary rituals seemed to have been aimed at, the, the idea was that death broke the body apart. It undid a natural unity that then had to be redone through a combination of, right, these mummification rituals or the way the body was prepared for the afterlife and ritual activity, right? That in order to be in a completely whole being, you needed to have a physical being and you needed to have, have it assembled correctly so that all the parts, all the working parts were there. You needed to have a working mouth, working eyes, working nose. And funerary texts will say things like this. Your, your eyes are open so that you can see, your ears are open so that you can hear. And you had to have the, that, that physical thing had to be in communication with the non-physical parts of the being. Right? Well, so for the well, Egyptians, what would happen if they weren't done properly? What happens to the person? You wouldn't be as effective. You wouldn't be as strong. You wouldn't be as satisfied, happy, able to come and go and interact with the living world. Because one thing that the ancient Egyptians hoped for in the afterlife was the ability to leave their tomb and go about the cemetery and then go back to their tomb at night. They wanted to be able to come and go to be able to communicate with the living. What we think of, a to of as a tomb in, the, in terms of Egypt is really a chapel. The parts of the tombs that were decorated would have been the places where rituals were carried out. People would come and visit them, right? The body was buried into the ground, right? But the, all of these representations were part of a very active living ritual uh, complex. And the Egyptians wanted, they didn't want to have the link between the physical world and the non-physical world broken irrevocably. And I think they knew on some level that that was inevitable, right? The, the, you wanted to restore that wholeness of life as much as you possibly could. That's amazing. What, what, what happened in the case of like, um, like King Tut? Because they, if I'm not mistaken, they, um, they didn't have his heart when they did um, his modification, right? It was so badly. Do you, do you subscribe to the, the chariot incident that is mm -hmm. kind of floating around now on how he, he died? 
like I said, Egyptologists hate to be wrong. And if I committed to that, if I commit to any one theory of how sure. to that, then I'm yeah, probably- I understand. That. You might as well just be a philosopher at this point, because philosophers are the same way. They'll never, <laughs> you'll never get them on anything. They'll just be like, yeah, I don't want to commit to that. But if I did, but you, you, you know, you have no way of knowing. But I'm no. just curious. You I know, if what, what you think about? He died an accidental death. I think he could have died by an accident, and the body could have been damaged after his death. Yeah. I don't think the evidence is clear enough. I don't think we have enough sort of smoking gun type indicators that he died an accidental death. So let's say you, you did go back in time, theoretically, and you, you were able to go and see all this in real time. How much do you think you would be surprised would probably be completely different from what you've actually textbook learned? I flatter myself that I wouldn't be too surprised. Really? <laughs> yeah. You, think, you think it's got to be some surprising. <laughs> Something you'd be like, wow, had no, no idea about that. That's awesome. One thing that I'm sure that would surprise me is the stories that people were telling, the mythologies that they had created. I think Egyptian, I think we, we know a lot about Egyptian myth and religion, but I think that we would probably find out about a lot of lo- little local traditions, local stories, local histories that we don't know. That we, you know. We know what's recorded in temples to the national gods. We know what survived in the records kept by people who, who functioned at the national level, who were very well educated. But in terms of the stories that local people told each other, in terms of the practices, the sort of ritual practices that they participated in day to day, their identities, who, you know, because Egypt today, at least, the people have pretty strong regional identities. They think of themselves as being not from Egypt, per se, but as being from Cairo, or from, as being from Middle Egypt, or from Upper Egypt, or being from their own village. Right. And those regional identities are something that interests me a lot, you know, who... How did the Egyptians think of themselves with respect to their their culture and what little what neat sort of, and what local politics are we missing? You know, like for instance, the period that I study around 1300 BC in the New Kingdom was a period when the the queens of Egypt seemed to have been very important. They seemed to have been very powerful, and the family from which a succession of Egyptian queens came from was from a town called Achmim, and Achmim was the city that belonged to a particular god called Min. And Min had another city called Coptus, a good ways away, but much closer to Thebes, which is where the Valley of the Kings is, right? And I wonder if there wasn't some element here of competition, right? You know, my, you know, Min of Coptos versus Min of Achmin. You know, this family from Achmin, you know, what was it that made them rich? What was it that made them powerful? Why was it important for a king to marry a woman from Achmin? You know, things like that, that we just have no real way of knowing because nobody wrote them down, but but we know that those kinds of dynamics play out in other societies. So why wouldn't they have played out in ancient Egypt? Yeah, they they would have had to, I would think. You know, that would be a... um, Are you familiar? Like, are you, like... Is this something that you get into, the the Egyptian, like, religion aspect of it? In terms of, like, what the... as As a nation or as a whole, they would kind of subscribe to? Sure. Uh, There is a... I, I, I want to say that his name was Horus. I'm not familiar with it at all, but um, I found that the story or the, or the parallel between um, the Egyptian version of of Horus's origins were almost identical to what you see in the in the Bible. You know, the, the I see a head shaking down. Yeah, there no, I've looked into that as well. I don't see any correlation whatsoever. To be honest with you, let's well, let's let's find out. I'm, maybe got, I'm wrong. We, but. This is the Hanami and Combs moment. Um, you, this is the expert. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Well, I'm more of an expert in the story of Horus than I am in the, the biblical narrative, obviously. 
Um, and I hang out with Old Testament people and not New Testament people. Excellent. So this is good. Okay. Yeah. Tell us. Horus is the son of Osiris, right? And Osiris mm-hmm. is meant to be this king of Egypt in a time before there, wa- there were kings of Egypt. He was the original great king of Egypt, and Horus is the original heir apparent, right? So Horus is a king. A ki- Horus is the son of a king. But the king has a brother. The brother is called Seth. And Seth, the brother, is jealous. He thinks that he should be the one to inherit the throne, not Horus. Mm-hmm. So Seth murders Osiris, right? And mm-hmm. Horus's mother has to spirit the child away to protect it from this jealous uncle. And then she has to go and gather up, because the body of her husband was dismembered. She has to go and gather up all the pieces, and she makes him into a mummy. And she's able to bring him partly back to life. Oh, oh wait. He expects so one, one big piece that she's missing. <laughs> We've got two narratives here, right? There's one story where Horus is hidden as a child in the marshes, right? So Horus, I've got the order wrong. The first thing that happens is, right, that Osiris is murdered. Isis pulls his body back together. She conceives her son Horus after she's able to partially resurrect her husband, right? Wow. (laughs) Except except the uh, the major part is missing from him, which would have been... The, the penis that, that she, she well they, they were actually, creative we had to create they were creative she had to create a new one from, from something wasn't it right well the, the original penis was swallowed by a fish yeah near that's right i remember that right yeah i'm oh, not seeing any relationship to christianity so far but <laughs> hold on hold on we're not there yet we're not there yet hold on so isis rebuilds the body of her husband she brings him back to life enough that he's able to beget a son and we actually have pictures right representations of the the mummified osiris lying on his bed with his erect penis right and isis is represented as a falcon hovering above. i'm not kidding this is yeah, no, I, I <laughs> this is hilarious yeah. falcon hovering above him right and so there's this kind of almost kind of mystical union right where whereby Os- uh, osiris begets his son horus and horus is born and then has to be raised in seclusion protected in the marshes and kept away from his jealous and he uncle. was not born on i mean one of the parallelisms for the zeitgeist was that horus was born on december 25th so as jesus come to find out that well one even even scholars say that jesus wasn't born in december but horus yeah. i believe was was contributed to be somewhere in june and july for his birth mm-hmm. right and And the Egyptian calendar is a little tricky to understand, right? So these dates move around a little bit, right? But yeah, the birth of Horus is not correlated with the Christmas holiday in any way. I would agree with that. But that's one of the things they put forth. They think that they say that Horus, if you look at the memes for this, Horus is is supposed to be born on December 25th, and it says Christ born on December 25th. The meme, every one of the memes, it's just, I've already looked into it. I know other people have. Um, I don't see any correlation whatsoever. And I think it's one of those things that just, it's it's out there because people want to believe that's the case, but it's bad scholarly work in my opinion. And not that I'm well, a it's meant to confuse. But like like the the main thing I don't that, that um, Dr. Bryson was talking about can't be missed. I don't think, and that is you're having a story about an immaculate conception or a a conception that is just um, impossible I'll, or again, uh, out- I, I'll send you the picture. It wasn't immaculate. Yeah. Immaculate means without sin. It was a it was a story about it, not a a divine or supernatural conception. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a way of not 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 your everyday but run you, of the mill. Do you think there's a narrative that the, for a case to be made that the Christianic version of all this was somehow a derivative of the horse or any kind of Egypt mythology, or do you think they're kind of independently separated from each other? I think that. 
a lot of people at the time when the Christ story was coming together would probably have had some awareness of the Mythophorus. The cult of the goddess Isis was very widespread in Roman sure. Egypt. So during the lifetime of Christ himself, there were cults of Isis in the Roman world. So people, educated people or people affiliated with that cult would probably have had access to a version of the myth. So the idea that there was some kind of interaction there isn't out of the question, but the idea that that Christ was designed, the Christ story was designed as a way of retelling the story of the resurrection of Osiris and the triumph of Horus, I don't think really holds water. Yeah. I think that it's much sense. more complex than that. Still at a tie. I was going to say, this is a much later period than I work in, so give me a couple of days and I'll get back to you, but it, you know... Well, it, it. I think that you, um, you're correct in the fact that it, it obviously predated, you know, what we have as the biblical text. So, to say that it, ha- it had no kind of influence on what would later become Christianity, I think, would be, you know, well, out of the question. Well, minor, like, like you said, like the cult of Osiris and, and things like that have ever been around. But I, I, I'm looking at more. All we need uh, is minor. All but we I, need is minor. But everything is a minor influence from everything else. I mean, but I still think that the narrative, the core things for Christianity are so dissimilar to what well, now, hold on. the Horace narrative would be that I would even remotely conflate them together and, and find any similarities between them. But if you're going to claim that your story is the inspired word of God and the only truth, then the influence part shouldn't be there. Yeah, necessarily, not necessarily. So absolutely, absolutely, necessarily. Because that was a that, those were those were a, a polytheistic culture. That would have been a huge well, there, no-no. There actually, well, a lot of them were monotheistic lateralist, but but they're, 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 or or henotheist or henotheism, depending yeah. on your period. Yeah, but on your social sector, right? Like there were some people who chose in the Greco-Roman period to d- dedicate themselves expressly to the cult of a single god. Right? They weren't ruling out. And, and so when you're, and when you're saying henotheism, you are using it how we we generally use it is is the worship of one particular god without the acknowledging that other gods do exist though, but not right giving tribute to right. them. Okay, so they did believe that more than one god existed. Yeah, yeah, right. henotheism. Yeah, would agree well, that's that my, that's what I mean. If if your if your if your book claims to be the one, then I don't think that that should have any influence. I think it actually should be a complete. You know, condemnation of that, but that's a that's a whole other, you know, discussion. One that I I think that people could talk about for hours. That's what like fascinates me is is the, and where we get in with with Doctor Bowen and um, Doctor Dimate, who is a biblical scholar. Um, he comes in, and I'll have before the show maybe twelve questions that I have, and I get to two of them because you go in you know one direction with a question and that leads to you know 40 different conversations on the side but ultimately the the thing that i see interesting spanning time and going back is that you have texts that obviously show signs of influence from the other you know whether it be from sumeria or the neighboring um cities they're they're influencing each other they're taking the you know the cool parts that they think uh, would appeal to their Society, oh, culturally, I, I definitely think reinterpreting them and 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 yeah, shoving it out as a new religion. I mean, there was obviously a lot of influence between all these all the all the countries that were you know in in um, geographical location to each other. There's absolutely that's there. my that's my point. 
Yeah. Well, and how you understand a thing that happens, right? Like something can happen and, it, you know, I can look at it and go, oh, that looks just like what happened to my buddy over here. Mm-hmm. You can go, it looks nothing, that was nothing like it. Right, like so, in terms of how you tell a story, right? Like what you mm-hmm. emphasize, what you don't emphasize, the things that, analogies that you use to make things clear. Right? You can you can tell the same story a variety of different ways. Two people can tell the same story and a third person get a different narrative completely out of them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. That's actually what Dr. Bowen did on the um, the, the show we had last. He had a um, an exercise where he walked through like the telephone game, but he had a paragraph he would have people write and... I mean, even by the time it got to the third person, it was a almost completely different. I mean, the idea was generally the same, but the word choices that they they took on were just. He had, not he had even, written, a, written a correspondence, and he wanted his students to do a textual criticism of it and see how much they would actually put verbatim. What if they would actually get the intent of the uh, of the what was supposed to be, you know, the communication between him and somebody else to relay information, what they would change if they didn't like certain wording. It, it was a very fascinating. Fascinating. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Josh is, Dr. Bowen is really good at things like that. I and mean, he's very good at making things clear and, and sort of taking something that could be very cerebral, right? Something that could just be a concept and making it real. How did they do I, that with hieroglyphics? Like, well, that's a great the, question. I, I too, I, I forgot about that. I, I was going to ask that too. How, how much do we know about hieroglyphics? I mean, can we actually read it fully? We so there are words the meaning of which we dispute, mm. and there are we don't know how it sounded. So the phonetics are not as well understood as the phonetics of the languages. Well, Sumerian's a different story. I don't know that much about it, but the the phonetics of Akkadian say are much better understood than the phonetics of ancient Egyptian. But in terms of deriving the meaning of a text, we can we do very very well. Yeah, pretty good idea. Yeah. So, we do are, you, very- so are you familiar with like the Book of Abraham? Because that has come up um, before the Book of Abraham when it comes to um, in LDS theology. They have right. similar, They have the Book of Abraham, which is generally is now considered to be the Book of the Dead and Egyptian funeral. Um, these facilities that um, you know, obviously Joseph Smith and I'm, I used to be Mormon, so but I don't I don't accept Mormonism any longer for very variety of reasons. But one of the things that I, even I questioned was the Book of Abraham as relating to you know the, the Mormon theism or the Mormon theology of Kolob and and stars and things of that nature. As an Egyptologist, have you ever looked at that and 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 seen if there's any relationship to what Mormon theology would be to the Book of the Dead? I have not looked at. The Joseph Smith, Smith papyrus specifically, but if it is a book of the dead, then that text has its own theological associations. It has its own mythology that is completely comprehensible in and of itself. In other words, if it is a book of the dead, then we know what it says. And it, doesn't it, does take, not, it doesn't take another. It doesn't take a new translation of it. No. Okay. There, are no two translators, any two translators would get very similar results and those results would not have anything to say about Mormon theology. Right. And that, that, then that's one of the things that I always had, had a problem with as well. Cause I look at it the same way. Look, if this was given to actual Egyptologists that understood the topic, would you get the same general consensus of what the narrative would be? And I think from my, what I've looked Absolutely. into, that would be the case. So, yeah. And chances are that we could point you to three or four other papyri from other places that said exactly the same thing. I, I do have another question from the audience here, actually, that uh, we've been, I, I think it's, I think we, we probably could spend a whole new show doing, so I, I don't yes. want to spend too much time on it because it's already nine minutes, 90 minutes in, but it's in relationship to Graham Hancock. Do you know who he is? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, so I so 
they want to know how you feel about Graham, Han um, Graham Hancock and his Egyptian theories and dating the Sphinx, and that was a civilization wiped out prior to the Sphinx. But really, in specific, when I was looking at Graham Hancock, um, there was supposedly the Sphinx in Pakistan that's very similar that he's done research on um, that has actually not just has a, a Sphinx, but it has the a temple that has pillars, has steps. Now, these could be natural formations or they could be uh, man-made. But since you have expertise on determining, you know, you said you spent like 900,000 pages or something on just the head of, of a statue. Have you looked into that to determine in, in your expertise if something like that is another Sphinx or is it just completely a man-made uh, natural phenomenon? So I actually haven't looked into that specific Sphinx. I would be happy if someone were to send me a picture of it to tell you what I thought. Balochistan. Balochistan. I don't know. It's Pakistan. Balochistan, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, that's a Balochistan. Okay. So I would that, that's a good question, though. I, I like Graham Hancock. I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yeah, Graham I, 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 you know, I, again, I think that, uh, you know, all these people want to put forth their ideas, and I think that should be in the public forum. That's what our show is about, actually. And if Graham Hancock has that idea that this is a non-natural phenomenon, I'm, I'd be fascinated to look into it. Well, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a smart guy. There's no question about And a lot of people who get very wrapped up in a lot of these theories are very smart people. There's no, I, it bothers me a lot to hear them sort of labeled as crazies. They're often very wrong. <laughs> but right? wrong doesn't but mean crazy. <laughs> but wrong doesn't mean crazy and wrong doesn't mean stupid. Smart people can be wrong. And it, are you familiar? There's a site off the coast of Japan called Yonaguni. Are you familiar with that? Right? In the Bimini Road. There are a couple well, of I know Bimini Road, sure. Underwater archaeological mm -hmm. sites. Where any geologist will tell you that's the natural cleavage of the rock. It just happens to break into these very even, very squared off mm -hmm. formations. Right? And they've spent years, decades of their lives developing the expertise required to say that, right? To know what it is. They, they can show the mechanism. They, they can show why it, the stones are the way they are laid out. Right, exactly. Or the formations, I guess you can call them. But I, you know, I've seen footage of Yonaguni. I've seen footage of the Bimini Road, and it sure looks like to me like a road. Yeah, mm -hmm. <laughs> absolutely. But I've also watched people break rocks, and they fracture in exactly that same way. Right? Mm -hmm. I... I, I can see where smart people might come to the wrong conclusions in a situation like that, and I suspect that that's what's happening. With the and there's nothing wrong to investigate those things. I think the problem comes into play when people have resolved these things, and you still have people out there going back 40, 50, 60 years, uh, trying to bring back some of these old type things. Like, for example, EU is making a big comeback, which is Electric Universe, and that's been antiquated since the 60s and 50s. Matter of fact, it was never really a, a scientific model at all. But now that is crazy. But it, yes, it's vastly crazy stuff. It goes against everything we know about stellar formation, against uh, nuclear fission, uh, neutrino development. It, it doesn't match anything we know about science, and yet there's still actual scientists and I, I'm going to say actual there, because um, they legit PhDs, but they, they're still trying to promote this narrative that relativity is wrong. It's, it, the sun is not a fission or some fusion device. It's actually held up by electromagnetics. Um, it just doesn't make sense. And so I, I see that a, is a sphinx in, in Pakistan, though. What's that? That is a sphinx in Pakistan, though. <laughs> It, 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 I've seen it. it, it I got to admit, it, it looks like a sphinx, and, the, and, the, and the, the formations around it seem to add to that, right? If it's just the an isolated... Do it for me. The, the columns in the rock below... Yeah, I've seen those, the pillars. Like, I, I could make a case for somebody thinking that it's a, a natural, you know... But you know what? But here's, here's natural. A, But when you look at those columns that run the length of the um, the mountainside down the below steps. it, I mean, there's but, no but way that's... The thing. Just like we talked about yesterday with, with Voltan, 
and, and then when using common sense. Sometimes when you're when you're approaching these things, I'm sorry, you, you got to like suspend common sense a little bit and, go, and take it objectively and go, okay, I have got to look at this and I have to show that this is a non-natural phenomenon. We've had the same thing with Mary Schweitzer with her red blood cells. She didn't have the data to say that the red blood cells, even though they probably looked like red blood cells, but she didn't have the data to support it. So you can't just go by what's common sense or what you visibly see. You need to you need to show it. You need to demonstrate it in science. And that's, I, I think, is the, 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 the other, absolutely difficult part for, for a lot of people. The other problem that we have is that you can't prove a negative, right? Logically speaking. Isn't modus that the, tollens. Isn't that the, huh? Modus tollens. But you really, the hardest argument in the world to make is that something didn't happen. Yeah. Absolutely. We do yeah. that every day. We right. do that every existential, single day existential on the show. Uh, negatives are very difficult to claim. They are very yeah. difficult, and they're difficult to talk about, and they tend to get people worked up. Amen. And so, I'm revved up right now. <laughs> well, I don't want to upset anybody. No, no, I, no you're Actually, not. You're not upset me. No. These are like I, I'm. I'm of the like. I have my view of of what I think. I, I tend to look at it like you know, if it looks like if it looks like in the shape of us, you know, the things that you know of today, and you have you know runnings down the side of the mountain that are almost perfectly symmetrical I, I know mother nature is good like very good but she's not that good i got i've think. seen i've seen it and it's pretty it is pretty convincing a little bit How, that it, it is not natural but again i i cannot make that determination and i would be not surprised if it's completely natural formation it wouldn't it wouldn't even surprise me but it, it question, but. so i would follow that up with a question too if this is a sphinx then that and a temple then that has a lot of implications uh-huh for what was going on culturally in that place at that time. Absolutely. Sure. So. Um, look at this picture and, and tell me what you think. Have you of, looked into this before? I mean, have you, it's something you've actually. I, not, I, okay. I don't know anyone who takes the idea. I don't know anyone who takes these kinds of ideas particularly seriously, to be frank. And so I've never really looked into it. Okay. Let's see if this is like what I've seen before. What are you going to show? If not, I can I can I can actually download a picture and show you. For, can you can you pull one up from here? Yeah, give me a second here. Um, yeah, it might be better for you to to I, I think share I, that. I, 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 I can find the one up. I'm thinking of. Give me one second here. Talk to um, yourselves. <laughs> yeah, it it's a B L B A L O C H Stan. Yeah, I've got it. I just got to download the one I'm thinking of. A really good picture that I remember. Uh, I mean, I'm. Oh, real I'm quick. Uh, what's the thing on the Sphinx's ear? What is that back there that uh, I've seen photos of? It looks like a square thing. People are kind of like highlighted it. Do you know what I'm talking about? A defect in the stone. Is that what it is? A defect in the stone. Yeah. Okay. Damage. I know. I know. We're just bringing you this on you, but it, it would be interesting to see like what you think. Because um, I mean, it is. It's pretty compelling, I think. It... Well, and that's the thing too, right? Like, if if I'm afraid to address something like this, if I say no, I can't look at something like this and tell you what I honestly think unless I've prepared. That's not doing anything to build trust, right? Yeah, to... that's fair. Right, I I'm happy to do it. Yeah, that's fair. Right, um, and I'm I want to be downloading say... a second here. Um... Okay, um, for you guys out in, in the. I want the outside to be able to, to see it, so. I mean, it's, when I, when, when when you first see, like, if you were to just see the top of the mountain, I could make a total case for that. It's just, you know, erosion and on the side of the mountain. I could totally see that. But when you look at the base, 
and how it's kind of carved back into the side of the mountain and you have columns coming out of it. I mean, it, it just, I don't know. It's fascinating. There we go. I can just show it now. How's that? That looks to me like naturally weathered rock. Yeah, I mean it, it. It does look natural. I mean that's what I'm saying. It doesn't. It doesn't surprise me. I think. I think this is like a, look, a paradelia. Look in the back Hang recess. On, no, I, I think this. I think this is almost a paradelia effect because we we've recognized things that we've called a sphinx. We've recognized things that we've called um, uh, uh, steps and pillars. And I think that because there just happens to be a a, a thing where they're all kind of in the same location, where, where our minds mentally put them together. But I would, oh, I, I, you would no. have to be an expertise, you know, expert to, to differentiate between this and a natural weather pattern. That looks to me like stone that was striated in some way. That there are places in that stone that are harder than others, and they occur fairly at fairly regular intervals. So as that stone was eroded, so, the, so it, those would be natural striations. Appear to be pillars are places where the stone eroded unevenly. If now, that makes sense. Now look at if, if there's no evidence of shaping, there's no evidence of of cap like the the shaping of capitals. Um, what, what would be like this? If if this sphinx was this, the thing that represents the sphinx, if this was actually gone, so you just had this right here, I, I would not look at that and go, oh, I think that is a natural formation. It doesn't look. Neither. Excuse me. I should be. Um, you know, I I I I would actually let me phrase it. I wouldn't look at this and I, I wouldn't see pillars. I wouldn't see steps. I would see like you said striations, right? The, the, I think what happens is because. You are actually seeing it with the, the Sphinx itself, or what looks like a Sphinx. Again, our mind is going, oh, these are two formations we recognize, or different formations we recognize, all in the same place. But if you break them apart individually, I don't think they actually are what people are saying they are. Well, and here's the I thing. I have a different theory. <laughs> all right, shoot. I think that it has less to do with, you know, the whether it was carved intentionally or um, put there by mother nature and more to do with um like our minds as a whole like uh steve is a very you know evidence-based reality grounded person where whereas i am a you know creative type i you know draw and and sketch so it, it may be that it's you know to an academic's mind looks i need more proof but for me i'm actually drawing in my head what it would have looked like to actually be yeah. um, those things yeah, back he's, then. He, he's like, he's much more, he's like my father, uh, even though I'm older than his. But my dad was like that. My dad was very creative when it came to being able to draw and um, abstract kind of stuff. Um, I'm more, I, my background was more in science. I am more, you know, logic-based. I'm more, not, not so much evidential, because I'm not, I'm a non-evidentialist, but I, I, I definitely can look at something like that and go, okay, Let's try to analyze if this is actually a natural formation or something that's more than that. I don't take the approach because of the aesthetics of it that says, oh, this is definitely a non-natural formation. Because I think that's when you run into problems. Because that's when you get into things like um, um, uh, Richard C. Hoagland and the periodeal effect of the Sardonia on Mars, right? The face on Mars. You get in the exact same thing. That's what we're seeing here, I think. Well, can I put forward? I've spent a fair amount of time out in the Egyptian desert. And I know that there are really interesting stone formations that occur naturally um, that look like, for instance, chicken. There's one that just stands out. I was in the White Desert in Egypt, and I saw a stone, a hoodoo, I guess they call them, a, a stone formation that looked just to me just like a chicken. It was definitely natural. There was no evidence of any human activity around it at any point, and there were several of them that kind of looked vaguely like it, but were asymmetrical or sort of unformed enough that you could tell, that you would never think that those were human creations yeah right so 
like for instance, um, you could try a Google search for something like Valley of the Whales, Egypt, or White Desert, Egypt, stone formations. The, the rock in a lot of these deserts weathers in very interesting ways, and it leaves behind these, these shapes. And to be honest with you, I'm not convinced that what your mind is doing is not very similar to what the mind of an ancient Egyptian might have been doing. In other words, ah. the, re the reason why the Sphinx is where it is, what it is, what it is, could have something to do with the way the Egyptians perceived the natural environment in that place. That so it could. That, so maybe that's a good compliment. Yeah, it, it, let's let's say there was a rock formation initially that looked something similar to this. Could they have actually just built upon that to make the Sphinx? Well, that would certainly explain the weathering problem, wouldn't it? If there was an outcropping of rock sure. that had yeah. been exposed for ten thousand years, that had, was then modified. And, yeah, it was already there for for a long an outcropping that was there for a long, long period of time. Then they they modified that into what we now see is the remnants of that of Again, the Sphinx. I I hesitate to put that forward as an idea. So don't quote me on that one because I don't know enough about the geology of the Giza Plateau. No, but it's not, it's not outside the realm of possibility, certainly. There we're are off the record here. Just there, we're not live. Uh, we're not, we don't have 200 just, people watching. Just, just friends hanging out. No. Just chilling. <laughs> you know, I, what I would want to do in this case is I would want to talk to somebody who really knows the geology of the plateau and would know whether there were likely to have been outcroppings like that there at any point. Um, and I would want to know if, you know, for instance, the Egyptians would have you know, if they would have seen other outcroppings like that, is there any desert environment nearby where they might have seen something like that and wanted to recreate it, right? Yeah. Basically, Steve, you see things for what they are. I see them for what they could be. And I think that the ancient Egyptians probably, I think uh, there were a lot of minds in ancient Egypt that worked very much like yours. And so when I see these desert stone formations, I look at them and I go, ah, I, that looks to me like some place that I would set up a sacred site. If I were, if I were living in, in, in an environment near that desert, I would see that and go, that looks a lot like a god. I should go build a temple there. That's cool. That, that's, I'm, I'm glad we arrived at this conclusion. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think you're spot on too. I but do you think that means that, that particular site experienced human interaction because I know that desert rocks weather in very weird and interesting ways. But wouldn't it be easy yeah. enough just to go and have them look for tool markings? Sure. Case? But it, but you're going to get somebody who's going to tell you, you know why there aren't any tool markings? Weather. Because that stone is so weathered, yeah. it's so eroded that the original surface is gone. Preach, girl. Preach. Yeah, it's one of those things that, that if you found tool marks, it would disprove the thing, but if you don't find them, it you can always you say, oh well, it's just weathered, and so therefore. Right. Somebody's gonna say, well, you know that that sphinx was carved in fifteen at fifteen thousand BC, and so the surface has eroded so much since then that any original remains of tool marks are gone. Yeah. What about you the can fact make an argument out of anything for real? No, what about the fact that at any site where there was human activity of any sort, we would expect to find pottery. The one thing that people leave behind everywhere they go is pottery, and if they live before pottery, it's flaked stone, right? It's stone tools. Mm -hmm. I could go there and there wouldn't be a single potsherd for miles and miles around. Well, the windswept sands, right? The deposition of layers over the million years since that monument was carved have, have done away with all the pottery that we would expect to find. Somebody will make it up want badly enough to believe that that's a human monument. That's something that people made. That's <laughs> And it's true. I mean, that you 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 hit the nail on the head. You can make a a a rabbit hole out of any argument. You know, they'll bring up what evidence is, and the other side can come up and say, "Well, 
you're just a shill and um, you know, Somebody working had, for the. Oh, sorry. That looks to me wait, like wait, very. Wait, 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 Somebody had asked if there was a different angle um, taken as, and I and I did some little looking. This is from another perspective, which I don't see any correlation between that and an artificial. I mean, it's completely natural from that perspective. Look up uh, rock formations, white desert Egypt, at some point, and see or rock formations, Valley of the Whales, Egypt, just to get an idea of what some of these, how striking, how stunning, really, some of these desert formations can be, and how improbable. But this is this is a completely different perspective where it, it it shows just by looking at certain ways, you're going to get a different mindset of what things appear to you, right? I mean, to sure. me, I don't see a sphinx in this at all, so. Have you seen? Have you guys seen the um, the man at Machu Picchu? No. Uh, I think. Oh, so, okay. Actually. We're going to show you this one last picture, and then we're going to let you go. I promise. We 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 have. <laughs> oh no, we're you, keeping um, you for another five hours. We're no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Steve, I'm going to send you this picture now. Oh, this is where this is Machu Picchu, where um, the you know the, the Mayans were obviously, but if you look at a um, kind of a side angle to the entire like plateau of. Where the, if you look at it this are. way and squint your eyes in dim lighting, it looks like this. <laughs> no, Steve, I, look, you I got know, the picture. I, I, Is it, the picture's in the, the hangout. Look at this and then tell me what you think. Uh, okay, let me. Where now you, you got to remember these pyramids were built on top of these mountains that are, I mean, super high. I don't know the elevation, but they're super high, and the way that they line up in a particular way is I think will blow your mind. Now this obviously is just a, a natural phenomenon, right. but it, um, it, it goes to what we were just talking about. I've seen this before, but I'm not really seeing what you're seeing. I think, what are you looking well, at? Well, we've already established that Steve, show it to the masses. All right. Well, let me save it first. By the way, this is a very low res picture. Do you have one higher? I think they'll be able to get the uh, idea. Just pop it up there. Okay. Now, if you look to the right hand, the, the middle mountain is the nose. The one on the left is a chin, oh, and yeah. then it absolutely. Oh, I see. Okay, so like, yeah, it this looks is like but, the see, face this, of a man sleeping. Yeah, this is the but AI. but see the the headdress is what come the where the the pyramids are. That's the headdress that the Mayans used to wear, and it wraps kind of around. That is a Mayan uh, line. I, there. I would just look at it and see it as paradelia myself, but I would agree. I I think. But again, part of the problem is that we know that the human mind seeks patterns. We know that the human mind is capable of creating things that are only sort of nominally there. Mm -hmm. And if I could, if I could have a non-human mind for a minute, if I could step away and say, what would this be like? How would a non-human mind perceive this, right? How do I get out of, out of, out of this head where I know the patterns are being created and see it through eyes that don't create patterns, right? And see if I still see the same thing. Oh yeah. Then I'd be a lot more comfortable with it. But to me, it just looks like it's like the old man in the mountain that fell off the face of the the cliff just a few years ago. Is that in New Hampshire? Um, don't remember. That's a new one to me. Now there are loads of places like this. There, there's the Devil's Gate Dam out in California. You know where Jack Parsons used to carry out all of his. Now this esoteric. one, I definitely think. I think he's right. I think this one does yes, okay. show a man. Now, um, now I. Man in the mountain in that image. Yeah, so this image, I think Kyle's right. I think there's definitely a, uh, probably a man in this particular image of Machu Picchu. Would you agree? I will stamp that with my professional. Yeah, 
My so, professional agreement. This, this is, this is well, if this is true, I, this I, is I want to clarify because that's though, one large that, dude. I don't think that was man, that, that was man made or, or you know, right. I don't think that men <laughs> made the, the Machu Picchu thing. Um, I just think that it's a, um, it, it's, it's odd in a sense that it's um, such a coincidence that the way that they laid out their civilization on top of a mountain. When you look at it at other angles, it doesn't even right. remotely look like that, though. Oh, yeah, but obviously it's not going to look like that. Oh, you like think that one when... Oh, you think from the... But did it look like it back then? I mean, there that may have been what it looks like now. I mean, I don't know how much wear and you know erosion and... and Probably looked yeah. more like so. He was a much younger man. He was no a much younger man. There are a couple of sites in Egypt where this effect, right, a natural feature that looks like something that suggests a certain image to people is, are, is is widely accepted by Egyptologists to have influenced the construction of the monument sure. there. Uh, this, see, this, mm -hmm. one, like, this, this was a different Park. angle, though. I, I don't see it. Hold on, Steve. Steve let, her, let her finish her. Let her finish. She's in the middle of a sentence. Like the temp there's a temple in, at uh, Jebel Barkal uh, in the Sudan where people just widely agree that the shape of the mountain suggested to the Egyptians the god of the location, the, the Abydos, right? The mountains mm -hmm. in Abydos have been suggested to have that same property. If you can see it, then somebody could have seen it 500 years ago. There's no reason to rule sure. that out. It's not crazy. Right. Yeah. There are plenty of places where, where we can go and say, you know what? The shape of these natural rocks may have influenced the people who treated them as sacred sites. There's, that's nothing. But you agree? would you agree yeah. that from this particular perspective, there's just nothing? I still see it. There? I really do. I still see it. I can still see it. Barely. barely. I mean, I mean that that to me is a is a like look look at the the place I grew, where I they grew chose up. I grew up with the Indian. I grew up in the Indian, and uh, I think it was a San Fernando Valley or San Jacinto Valley. I can't remember where's 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 the reclining Indian at. Anybody remember? I don't know. I have to look it up. Um, have you ever seen that? There's a we used to drive by it all the time. There's a mountain range in California, and it's actually a reclining Indian. It looks like. Maybe there's more to this than we thought. There's much more to it. People, people are now seeing <laughs> people are now seeing Nephilim and Titans in rock formations, thus demonstrating we, the uh, we true. we have kept you uh, over what uh, what I initially told you that we. So thank you for being um, patient with us. We uh, when we get these kind of topics where we're both um, like invested in them and, and really interested uh, in them, we uh, go a little overboard in 900 directions just because. Like you, you have this information with you every day, so you know it's nothing to be able to rattle off, you know, all of these facts. But for someone like us, who, especially when we just got done with a, a flat Earth um, catastrophe last night, having something rooted in actual science and and evidence and that is fascinating, I think is um, that's why this is non sequitur. No we go from one thing to another. But let me show you this yeah. one real quick, because this one I think is even a greater effect. <laughs> I hope I've been able to to say to, to bring something to the conversation. Oh hell yes. Uh, absolutely. Now look at that yeah. one. Tell me that that does not look like a face. He looks like he's sound asleep. Yeah. That's that the in, that's the Indian of the mountain. It's a legit thing. I've driven by it. Um completely natural formation though. See, that doesn't look that doesn't look much like a face to me. The other really? one is much more detailed. I think this one's way face. more striking than the other one. Well this here's one, you one can actually see his wrinkles on his eyelids. No way. There are people who specialize in, in, in the archaeology of place and landscapes and the experience of a place. And one of the things you'd have to ask yourself is, what angle would the Mayans themselves have been seeing these things from? What angle Absolutely. would they have been looking from? Uh, uh, this is kind of, it's called uh, Della Hill, by the way. I never knew that. Interesting. Della I, Hill, huh? Yeah, I, I definitely see a face there. I'm sorry. but 
I do too, for so, sure. Yeah, yeah, you can definitely see a face. It's just not as de- like as detailed as the. I I think the, I think that was more detailed my, to me personally, but the that's subjective. You I like guess. more subtle modeling in your portraits. Yeah, he's more. Yeah, yeah very he's, he's an artist. Right? He, he does artistry <laughs> stuff. Like I said, I'm the. If you want to solve a math problem, maybe I can help you out. But he does the drawing. I can't draw with the crap, right? Yeah, I I am the um I I am the the free spirit. I believe that, uh, and I think it's a good thing to think that humanity is capable of a little bit more than we give them credit for way back then. Um, I think that's a uh, that, that's a good mindset to have. Now we do need people like you guys who are rooted in reality and to be able to say no, you're. You're going too crazy now, but you know a little crazy is a good thing. A little crazy is no, fine. Wrong with a little crazy. You got to be a little crazy. Uh, well, I hope I've you know been able to give you some useful information and you know keep. This has been awesome. Absolutely. Keep not following. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything you want to plug before uh, we let you go? Do you have any books coming out you want to plug? You have a YouTube channel, a Twitter account, anything of those things? Not yet. Watch this face. <laughs> oh well, we got to get you on social media then. Yes, you. Uh, we we we're gonna we need to get you back for a like a Sphinx. Um, we we based we we touched on it a little bit, but I think that um, doing something that kind of focuses in on that one particular aspect, just because it is such an oddball, I think would be a a really cool thing to kind of do. And you don't know any um, people that you were you were just referring to that do that specialize in the. Um, how was it that you put it? The the uh, landscape. Um, they would they would specialize in like landscape features that would look kind like, of like, us, the, like like the Sphinx in, in Pakistan. Who would be like somebody who would be more? Let me get back expert. to you on that. Okay. Someone who works on like the phenomenology of landscape and things like that. I'll 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 ask around and see if I can find anybody. Awesome. Yeah, I, that would be really cool. I, 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 t- I got to tell you that the people were going nuts. They love this. Um, very well received. We appreciate all 150 to 200 people watching throughout the the show. Um, if you guys have any questions on this, please email us at uh, live at nonsec.com. You can also tweet to us at uh, nonsec, nonsec show. What is it? At, at nonsec show. Yeah, on Twitter. That's all it is, right? You can tell Steve doesn't. Uh, I don't do tweet. Twitter. I don't tweet to the nonsec show. <laughs> I use it to tweet to other people. So. <laughs> Well, good luck with but your yeah. guys. I'm I'm glad you're getting these kind of conversations started. It's nice to nice to know you're out there doing this stuff. Uh, sometimes we wonder, based on um, the, the 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 shows that we do, but this was not one of them. This was um, something that we really enjoyed. So we appreciate Dr. Bowen um, sending you our way, and I'm sure that there, he's probably going to be um, talking to you soon on his new channel that he's got. Um, yeah, we should Digital plug that. Yeah. So that was right. cool. But um, Dr. Bryson, thank you again for joining us. Um, and guys out there, uh, we'll be in the Discord later to kind of um, see what you guys thought in real time. And like Steve said, tweet us at nonsexshow. Um, I'll be tweeting you back, so don't worry about Grandpa. He'll be fine. He'll stick to his dad jokes. Thanks, gentlemen. Have a nice evening. Good night, all. Good night.